Hello and welcome to Tales from the Innerverse, the podcast that explores the inner universe of the human experience. Hello and welcome to episode 11. Today I have the distinct pleasure of having my guest Antisa Jensen. Antisa Jensen is an emotional intelligence expert who loves to shift paradigms through pitch-perfect truth-telling. She is masterful in the art of weaving potent and precise energetic transmission through eloquent spoken word and captivating moments of silence in ways that dismantle the intellect and pierce straight into the heart of things, instantly unlocking hidden potential and the kind of resonance in connection we all crave. Antisa specializes in facilitating fundamental transformation, as well as cultivating these innate human skills in others through keynote speeches, EQ workshops, expedition style intensives through her company Adventure Awake, and one-on-one coaching. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Thank you, Mark. It's such a pleasure to be here. (sighs) Well, I'd love to talk about what the internal spark was that led to the creation of Adventure Awake. Like what was happening inside that led to that? And how did that come about? You know, (laughs) I think that's the funniest way to start this is to reflect back on a Facebook post that I wrote probably in 2014, where I was looking for ways to be the next Anthony Bourdain. And he was somebody that I really admired at the time um, for the way that he traveled because he, in his way, he was using food to um, connect with local people and see more, learn more about their culture, about their politics, about the way that they thought. And I was really inspired by that and kind of chased him around the globe. I mean, so much of my traveling was really actually inspired by, you know, all of his, all of his work and who, who he is or who, who he was as a person. I was actually quite, quite devastated when, when he took his life a couple of years ago. And travel for me has always been, I've been a big traveler. I've traveled to now probably over 50 countries. I've kind of stopped counting. And it's always been a really powerful way for me to, uh, I guess you could say, loosen up my belief systems. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you go to a foreign country, you see that people live in a completely different way than you do. And I was attracted to countries where people really did live in a completely different way than how I was raised. And you kind of learn that how you think defines your reality experientially in the process of traveling. And because I was so um, sort of dead set about pursuing all of these things and unhacking all the ways that my, my mind was probably imprisoned, I would go into sort of tougher and more riskier and more sort of fringe travel experiences to sort of figure out who I was made of and what I was made of. I kind of wanted to, I was, you know, kind of, kind of an intensity junkie in that way. And um, of course, ended up having a lot of really intense travel experiences that were kind of traumatizing, like getting robbed in Mexico and getting abandoned in the middle of nowhere and I'm on the border of Peru and Bolivia and kind of not really knowing whether I was going to make it out alive from those experiences. And um, and 
going through you know the process after getting home from those places of sort of reconciling my travel self with my home self and feeling a deep desire to be who I am everywhere, know who I was so that I could be who I was everywhere um, and start to find a sense of internal security that all aspects of myself were availed, available to me in all aspects of my life, which was something that at the time was kind of haunting me. I was, I'm a very multifaceted person and I was um, quite judgmental of my mutability. I thought that there was something wrong with how much of a chameleon I was with the fact that lots of parts of myself would kind of stay hidden in certain environments. And so I was really wanting to provoke this sort of expansion of myself. Um, and travel was sort of a catalyst for that. Um, and I started going through these really big experiences while traveling and then coming home and trying to integrate, you know, these really far out experiences with my sort of normal, you know, well-privileged life here in Copenhagen. And, um, ultimately realized that if I had had a coach while going through these experiences while I was traveling, that I probably would have um, accelerated my growth and spared myself a lot of unnecessary suffering because of the way that I thought about the things that I was experiencing and the ways that I um, was trying to analyze and process it. In fact, the process of me analyzing and processing was kind of an obsession and a sort of a sort of the shadow side of refinement. Like I was really um, using it to be more critical with myself in a lot of ways. And I needed, I, it had me occur, it, it occurred to me at one point, especially when I was traveling in South America that um, I didn't have all the answers and I didn't know how to um, get myself out of the monotony and the, the, the sort of imprisonment that I felt inside of my own heart. And I had gone to go hire a coach and was like, wow, what if you took a coach into the landscape of international travel and more of sort of adventure or wilderness travel, which is where I tend to go. I like to go out to the middle of nowhere. Um, what sort of, what sort of sort of like landslide transformation would be capable of happening in those places? Because, you know, the sky's the limit. There isn't a container. Everything goes because you're with someone 24 seven, you can see all of it and you have the potential to transmute all of it in a really short period of time. And then come home truly fundamentally changed in a way that, you know, then the, the real intensive kind of begins because you have to hold those things to all of your habits, all of your patterns that you left behind, got free from, and then going home and, and really recreating the circumstances of that intensive at home so that you can get free. And I was really, really inspired by that idea. And I, it, that was actually, you know, I've been a coach now for what, five or six years now, but I sort of, <laughs> you'll, you'll have a good laugh about this, but like I jumped into not just one-to-one -one clients on zoom. I jumped into taking four to six clients <laughs> on international trips where I was doing all of the planning and container holding in person with these people who some, most of which knew me because I had a, enough of a network, but like, I was it's really insane. Like I look back on it now and I'm like, what were you thinking? But it was, I had a really potent learning curve because of that. I learned how to coach. I learned how to um, work with people so that they would be available for what I was reflecting to them. I learned um, all of the places where I was ignoring my own instinct in terms of who I was bringing on these trips and whether they were people that were ready for what I wanted to offer. Um, 
it really groomed me to um, have a lot of um, discernment about the art of coaching and to really become masterful in the craft itself and, and not just do it because I wanted people to see the power of transformation and travel. Like I wanted them to really experience what I had experienced in their own way, not in my way. And I had to learn how to coach in a way that facilitated that. And I got all of the raw materials to, to go on to that adventure through Adventure Awake um, and all aspects of it. <laughs> so actually, it was quite wild. Do you remember a moment or a sensation that you felt in that moment when you realized you were gonna create this thing and do your first Adventure Awake expedition? Yeah, I mean, what's so funny, I was, I had been going through some sort of deep inner work in an existential crisis, kind of the three, four years prior to um, sort of the, the conception of the idea, which took place in my shower. Um, and I got this just huge download, you know, showers are often the places where we don't have any other distractions. And so you just sort of, you're kind of an open channel. And I got the business name, the concept, the structure of the business all downloaded to me in like 15 minutes. And I was just like, holy crap, did that just happen? Here's this really great idea. And at the time, I wasn't that confident in what I had to offer. I, you know, I'd only graduated from coaching training like six months before that. So it was like, in all in all, I had like a year of coaching experience um, and not really, you know, like yeah, like I didn't, I wasn't as experienced as, as I thought I should be. And, you know, I didn't have, um, like I, I had actually kind of been a coach my whole life, but I didn't really have sort of the, the uh, sense of inner authority to really drive it. And so I was really looking for other people to champion my ideas at that time in my life. Like I, I was like, look at this big, great idea I have. And I kind of wait for other people to sort of fuel the flame or like pump the pump the flames, you know. Um, and so I sat on the idea for for a while, and um, that was in itself, I think, a really important learning experience for me because um, I'm I'm actually not ever really short on ideas, but one of the areas where I really struggled with the early parts of my coaching career was championing my ideas and taking action on them so that I could go out and, and do sort of the research and development work of finding out what was relevant for people. And um, one of the things that's just wild across the board is like everyone loves the idea of Adventure Awake. Like there wasn't a single person who was like, that's terrible. And um, except for the early stages with my starting business partner, she was just like, I would never pay for that. And what's really funny is that she ended up helping me start the business. And so um, eventually she realized how great of an idea it was and wanted to be involved. But at first she, she didn't even see it because she wasn't that big of a traveler yet. So I think that she kind of had, she had to take some time to learn and we had, we traveled to a couple places together and I kind of was like, see how great this is. But yeah, that, that, that initial, um, that initial spark was sort of pure inspiration. Like I knew, I knew the story that needed to be told. I knew why it mattered for people. I knew why it was valuable. Like I didn't, I didn't have any doubt about any of that. It was for me, it was like taking those first steps and doing the really vulnerable thing of birthing this thing into the world. And 
incidentally, um, the first trip was to Georgia and it was in 2016, exactly this time that we're recording this episode, I was in Georgia. So my Facebook feeds filled with reminders of where we were. And one of my clients on that trip is now out in her life doing the things that we talked about on that trip and with some of our one-to-one coaching that we did a year later. And it's sort of wild to think about that that's where it started. And when we were in Georgia, it was profound how suddenly it was like I entered into some sort of quantum territory where it was like the trip went by really fast and it was just an insane amount of energy. And I was just like, is this really happening? Is this actually occurring? And, and that fundamentally changed my life because it was the, it was the first time where I did something really, truly vulnerable, like putting my ideas into the world and people bought them and they paid, you know, they invested in themselves and they came out on the other side transformed. And I knew that I facilitated something really special. And um, that sort of was a game changer for me because it was this really short container, actually, like they had a couple coaching sessions before and a couple after and then five or six days in Georgia together. And it was massive for everybody for including for me and, and my old business partner, we were just blown away by it. So so yeah, that's the part I'm curious about. Like there's this moment where you get the idea downloaded to you and you sound like you did a bunch of due diligence before you actually went out on your first one. But there was a kind of um, initiatory exp- internal experience for you in launching it, right? You had to come to some courage about the value of the idea and then the, be willing to take the big risk and, and go out and do it, right? And, and can you describe how that process felt for you? You know... I, in so many ways, I was really surrendered because the kind of traveler that I was leading up to this was the kind of person who would land in a country with no local currency and no idea how anything worked. And I would just figure it out on the ground. And as a result, some of the mistakes that I made is that when you're holding a container of other people who are entrusting you with their internal sense of security, um, there are fewer risks that are really available to be taking energetically when you're in a foreign country in that framework. And so I did a couple trips where, um, you know, me and my business partner were planning everything and we did like three months of work to prepare the trip so that it could be smooth. And I started eventually hiring, for example, a travel agency (laughs) to do that by the third trip, because it was just like traveling one person like that, you know, like, it, there, there were just a lot more places where things could go wrong. Like when we were in Jordan, for example, we stayed at a hotel at the beginning of the trip, planned to go back to the hotel at the end of the trip. We came back, they had given our, like had overbooked. And so we had just come back from being in the desert for four days and hadn't showered and eaten in hours. And we were like, uh, where, we, where are we going to go? And then we spent like three hours in the lobby trying to find a new hotel um, what, with clients, with like five clients sitting there. So there were there were some really important on the ground training learnings that came from from launching there and in many ways i think much of it was like discovering the the difference between kind of being fearless or courageous and um being numb 
in a, in a certain area of my life. Like I didn't, it didn't occur to me that there could be anything that would go wrong. And that if there was, we would figure it out. And when it's a business, it's a little bit of a different story, you know, like I, I consequences to you are one thing, but the consequences to your clients is another. Exactly. And, and what is the, you know, like, I think I really took for granted how naturally resilient I was. And so I kind of had an expectation that if people were going to come on those types of trips with me, that they would also have some of that embedded into their psyche already. And that wasn't true all the time, you know, like, and, and I hit my edges in some places, like in Namibia, we had a herd of elephant come walking through our camp at bedtime and we were all terrified. And here I was supposed to be the leader of a transformational experience, but we had to like recover and integrate from the experience of almost getting killed by a herd of 30 wild elephants in the middle of the night in, in the middle of the African bush in the Kalahari desert. Like it was just like, there's, there was a certain level of intensity that was innate in the experience. And I didn't, it took me a couple trips to understand that I didn't have to turn the intensity up, that the trip itself would create the transfer, transformational material so that they could transform. And I didn't actually have to do anything but witness it. And so I overworked myself on those trips, which required, you know, months of recovery. And my clients were probably full like three or four days in uh, of like, you know, 10, 15 day trips. And so there was just like learning how to calibrate the energy of the land, of the people, of the location, of the group itself, and who has, who's bringing what in. It was the sort of orchestration that I um, had to learn how to do um, in real life, IRL. You know, like it was really like I, I, I could not have learned that in any other way. And I came in sort of blind to that. And so I, I really like, I got smacked about it, got smacked around about it quite a bit. And it so was, was that it kind was, of an initiation for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what, what's happening internally in the middle of an initiation? What is this enough human being experiencing? Like at the quantum level? I mean, my experience, I think everyone has a different way of talking about this. But my experience is that um, when the intensity goes up at that level, like that I'm describing it, it's usually equal in measure to my own resistance to um, the present moment, to surrendering, to whatever, to listening instead of talking. You know, like there, there were all these things that um, at the time that I was in them felt really intense. And we all have our go-tos with that. My, my go-to when things get really intense is like my first, my first sort of belief system is like, I have to figure this out. Like I take, I take responsibility. I start to analyze stuff. I get really critical of myself. Those are things that I have to watch for when I'm in an environment where I'm not in control. And the thing is, is that um, you know, these trips are just as much for, for me as they are for anybody else in a lot of ways. It's like, we're not actually ever in control. And those trips really remind me of that. So it's like, for me, it's a beautiful and potent reminder that none of us are ever in control and none of us actually know what we're doing. And it's my practice to get to take other people out into the environment and let them wit witness me go through that process with them and and still have authority in myself. Like, where do I, where do I surrender that authority or where do I give it up and, and, you know, go for victim consciousness instead? Like we, the, all of that is fair game on a trip. So 
I can sit down with my clients and be like, here's what I was telling myself earlier today when the hotel told us that we didn't have rooms for seven people and I had to figure it out on a Saturday night in Amman during the highly trafficked weekend of the year because it was like the a famous Muslim holiday or something. I can't even remember. We got to have that as material. And so, you know, yeah, it's, I would just say that like the higher the intensity usually is where I know at least I have the most resistance to presence. And then that breaks down the, and into the loss of control. And would you say that that loss of control is sort of the precursor to actually being able to go into the level of initiation, the transformational piece? Is that, is that a part of the process? Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that it's, you know, depending on whatever the format is, I guess the, the, the functionality kind of all fun is the same, you know, we're, we're constantly, whether we're aware of it or not, we're kind of constantly looking around us to get validation of our experience of reality. You know, when two people come together, they're just sharing their belief systems with one another, no matter what they're talking about. And what we sort of do as humans, and this is kind of in the fabric of our society, is we go around and say, hey, I see this, this is real. I give it this type of value. Do you see this? Do you see it is real? Do you give it this particular type of value? And there are these sort of glitches in the matrix where that doesn't happen. And then you're like, oh, this is a weird anomaly. You know, like I just watched the matrix the other day. So this is kind of a <laughs> sort of a random. I'm going to turn you on to this great group called um, reprogramming the matrix. That's out of great. Arizona. I think you really like them. Awesome. I look forward to that. Um, anyway. So yeah, it's, you know, we're, when we have an opportunity to see those anomalies, basically, to, to check in and say, hang on, wait a second, is it possible that, first of all, like, you know, the way that I teach it to other people is, are you, are you in a state of reactivity right now? Is your nervous system activated? Because one of the easier identifiers is knowing whether or not your nervous system is activated. You may not know what to do about it at the, at the moment, but if you're activated, you can lean on some tools to handle your activation. And that's how I teach it. Like, I know what I look like when I'm activated. Like I get, I get righteous, I shut down. I sometimes blame, but I usually get extra critical of myself. I start walking on eggshells around people. I, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, and when I have, when I show up in that particular way, I know that there's something I'm trying to avoid. Like, I just, I just know. And so if in those moments you can say to yourself, um, is, there, is it possible that there's something here that I can't see? Yes. Yes, there's statistically, like you're really seeing like 4% of your reality at all times anyway. And so, yes, it's very possible, actually probable that there's something here that you can't see. And being willing to claim something without identifying with it is usually the um, antidote. Well, mm. maybe, maybe I do do that thing. Maybe someone's reflecting to me, or maybe this experience is for me and not happening to me. Like maybe there's something I'm supposed to learn from this, even if I don't know what that learning is. That is what sort of opens up that initiatory portal place where you can truly transform is you, you consider something to be true. You claim it as a possibility. You disidentify with it. So it's not disassociating from it, but you don't identify with, with the thing. You don't say, this is who I am now, because that sometimes results in you beating yourself up, which is so not necessary. 
And then you then once it's when it's kind of in your field, it's no longer a threat for you anymore. You don't have to worry about it. And you can move on with your life. <laughs> it's actually so like, that's the integration part of the initiation, right? You go through the yeah. dis what you know, solve coagula, basically, you, you go through this period of getting disrupted, and then acquiring new resources, and then integrating those new resources. That's kind of the initiatory framework, right? Is yeah, and I would I'm even missing? break that down. I would say you're acquiring new resources, but the re new resources don't really come to you until you've gone all the way through the disruption, you know, like, this is the thing that I think is really important is that, you know, I've, I've said this many times now is that if you understand everything about what you're doing, you're not growing. <laughs> it, it's just, it, it, there's no possible way for that to occur. And this is one of the things that I really loved about about adventure awake trips. I, I mean, I still run them except for it's COVID time. So I haven't run any for a while, but is that, you know, kind of at any given moment, you're really quite visibly consciously in the unknown. You're really embarking on a new territory and you don't, you don't, it's not as easy to delude yourself into believing that you're supposed to understand everything. You kind of already come in with the expectation that you're not going to understand anything. And over the course of time in a foreign location, things start to become more familiar the longer, the longer that you're there. And that's an excellent metaphor for how transformation works in life is, you know, like you try something new, it's totally unfamiliar. You have no idea how to use it. You have no idea what to do. And then over the course of time, as you practice, as you immerse yourself in this new experience, it becomes familiar to you. And that familiarity eventually, like there's like a threshold and you're gonna need to create more unfamiliarity in order to continue the growth, regardless of where it is on that spectrum. Yeah, a lot of people in the transformational community and consciousness raising are talking about journeys. And in this case, they're typically talking about journeys that are hosted by a shaman person and then they're interacting with ayahuasca. What was curious to me about the Venture Awake story was the idea that you actualized the metaphor instead of it being an internal psycho psychonautic journey, you externalized it and it became an externalized reality of the journey. And uh, it occurs to me that I view you as what I call a term I coined called a woshaman, which is a, a woman who's a shaman. Mm. And you've been initiated in by a particular teacher in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself a Woshaman and, and what is, what are the key pieces of, of that identity? I mean, if you were to just like out ask me, I, I don't think that I would ever call myself a, a shaman or a Woshaman. Um, and at the same time, I am aware that because of who I am and what I have experienced and what I've integrated from those experiences, my presence is a very healing presence. And I'm, I'm aware of that. And it's not that I heal other people. It's that I help my presence helps other people become conscious of where they can heal themselves. So it's actually a really passive thing being a healer. And um, I certainly, I certainly think I am, I am a healer in many, many ways. And I've had direct experiences of having facilitated that with people, both existentially as, you know, through coaching um, and doing body work and, you know, in relationship and all sorts of ways in which you can end up having a healing experience. Incidentally, the, 
shaman that I was initiated by in Africa, I did healing work on her while I was down there because she was sick. And that was a really wild, um, unexpected aspect of that experience was that I went down there for her to work on me. And I spent the first four days while I was there working on her um, <laughs> because she had had an experience and was needing some support. So, well, energy has to be, you know, moved. It's, it's created, but you know, we, I don't count the sun necessarily, but I do as the energy creation. But in yeah. this case, the initiation process that you received required of you that you give something. And I think that's true in all cases for initiates, is right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I also paid um, because that particular place had some structure, fortunately, around the, the spiritual experiences that they were offering. You know, you stay for you stay for two weeks, and they take care of you. Um, there's a whole crew of people taking care of one person, so it's really quite a, a formidable experience. But yeah, I mean, to, just to go back to your your original question, um, I, there there's probably I don't know if this is really true, but I really like to believe that we all have the capacity to heal ourselves, and the thing getting in the way is that we can't always see what is needed for us to heal in ourselves. And so you do need other people who have a clear reflection. And it's that, that's a really important piece as someone who has a clear reflection who can mirror to you sort of like a laser pointer of like, here's where you need to look. And, um, you know, people do that in a myriad of ways, some more graceful than others, but, we all have that capacity. This is the thing that's so powerful. I see this with my clients. You know, I saw this with you as well. Is like the more you go in and um, transmute, like truly transmute and expand that inner core of you that is is and has always been authentic, present, loving, kind, compassionate. As you expand that into all aspects of your life, other people will naturally gravitate to you. And, you know, it's like a, a very organic pyramid scheme <laughs> in a way. It's like the more inner work you do, the more people will relate to your journey and want to be around you because your presence helps them see the things in themselves that they can't see that they also need it. You know, you, you kind of become a key to unlock other people's keys or holes. And, and it's, it's quite profound to experience that web. You know, like you and I have talked about this on, on multiple occasions. Like I do very little marketing and I have a full load of clients and people find me, you know, and it's, and I spend a lot of time in my apartment. It's not like I'm out and about all the time. I'm not partying at bars on the weekends. You know, I, I, I very rarely go to networking events, but when I do, um, I have, I, I make connections really quickly and people who are looking will find what they need. And this is the thing is you, you turn on your seeker and, and then the medicine that you need will find its way to you. And there's, there's a very mystical way in which that happens that I just fully believe in. Yeah. It's a, it's described sort of scientifically as the quantum field, right? Mm -hmm. But we could talk about it as a, the, the Gaia network or the spiritual energetic, you know, transmission network. I mean, there's a bunch of, great ways to verbalize it but yeah it's it's um i think it's be a bit modest of you really to say you've never thought of yourself as a shaman or a woshaman 
and that's okay. Like, I think that's an important piece because the ego isn't really going to help be a great reflector. As you said, you can't, if you're obsessed with yourself and we see a lot of teachers get into this problem. Like this is one of the stories of the transformational world, you know, the story about Nexium and like, there's just a whole ton of stories about people becoming a cult of personality instead of a transformation agent. Mm. Um, and I, I wanna, also think you're sorry, go ahead. I, I also think, you know, you do put yourself out there. And one of the questions I had was related to this TEDx talk you gave um, and this idea called the grand pause. Now we're both musicians, but mm -hmm. this idea of pause, it's, it's, it's internal. Like we stop at the mid breath point and at the exhale, there's this pause, but in, in your lecture, the grand pause, there's this big empty space and that creates the potential for something new to happen. And recently you talked about, this is now happening on a global scale in one of your posts and you mm. never intended in your TEDx talk, right? To that, that was going to happen. Anyway. <laughs> and so my question is, what do you think is next uh, after the pause? Is it like a thunderous crescendo or like the soft opening of a new melodic movement? How do you see the future unfolding? Mm. Okay. Well, I want to see if I can find a way to, bridge the reflection you gave just before this new very profound question that you've just asked me um, around my modesty. Um, I would just say it's actually not modesty. I, I, I don't feel like I'm modest. I'm quite confident actually. Uh, I'm probably more confident than many coaches these days in terms of um, what I'm capable of and what's also required um, in order for me to serve. And um, that comes mostly from humility and my humility comes from plenty of opportunities to have been led by my ego and, and ending with getting hit by a spiritual two by four and eating dirt instead. And the thing that I have just really grown to realize is that I can be as powerful as I want, but I'm almost just, I'm, I'm, I'm only as powerful as another person's receptivity. And when it comes to capacity to heal. And so if I can come in and I haven't calibrated my power and I'm on an ego trip about my power and other people get steamrolled by me, I can't serve from those conditions. I can't actually help someone heal. And for me, my driving force and everything I do is that I deeply want to be 100% used in service to facilitating the liberation of other people. And I genuinely feel that way. Like that is, that's what drives my own personal work. Every time I go through a growth spurt, my clients get free. And I get so excited with that feedback loop. And that is a really, really important aspect of the world that we live in right now is that that relationship matters. And I'm just humble enough to admit that I can be as talented and as smart and as skilled and as experienced as I, as I could ever be in the world. But my... Um, my ability to be successful with a person has to do um, do with their receptivity, whether they're karmically ready. Like I'm not always going to be successful. I'm going to have clients who are going to come out hating me because they weren't ready to look at the things that I was pointing at. Like it, uh, so much of the work that I do is around listening really, really deeply to just how receptive and just how big of a capacity a person truly has to receive all that I have. 
to offer and continuing to refine that gauge over time. And that's, I think that's true for anyone who's a coach or a therapist or a healer or a shaman or however you want to talk about this, this role of being sort of the wisdom holder or wisdom um, advocate, you know, like I can say an advocate because you're an advocate of everyone coming into their own wisdom. I don't really want to give people my wisdom. I want them to discover their own wisdom. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Um, it's really important that we, we remember that, you know, like that, that you can't strong arm someone into a transformational experience. The reason why I've had the experiences that I've had is because I've been um, desperate in most cases. I've gotten to a place where I'm like, I cannot have this experience anymore. It's time for me to do something different. I no longer feel like I have a choice. And I now live in a world where I feel truly choiceless. Like there is a point where you have a choice and then there's a point where you don't have a choice anymore. I can't walk backwards. I can't walk away from love. That's not an option for me anymore. And so there's deep humility in that. And there's deep learning in um, and trust and faith in, in everyone really being on their own course. And um, I'm not in this to save the world. I'm in this to, to serve. And, and however little or grand that may be, that's up to God, you know? And I've gone through phases where I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be famous. <laughs> and I've gone through phases where I'm like, I'm such the bomb healer. I'm totally going to save all these people. And that way of thinking didn't serve me ever. And so I'm, I just, I'm constantly learning on this. And I'm at a new level of learning it, of it even just this, these recent months of just like, I'm deeply honored that my clients wanna do their transformational work with me as their witness. And I watch them in awe. And I know some of it has to do with them and being in my field, obviously. And they wouldn't have the results that they were having if they weren't doing the work themselves. Yeah, it's a recognition that the innate capacity for our own transformation is always present for us. Yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I really it's see a, myself as a mirror and, and looping back to the earlier phases of my life where I was kind of in denial of my mutability. Like I've part of my coming into my old age, talk, talk like I'm really old. I'm not that old, I guess I'm 38, but one of the big sort of, um, areas of me that relaxed is that aspect that I'm like, I'm not just mutable. I'm, I am a mirror. I'm like, I really, and I amplify my environment, the people around me. And that amplification gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And, and as I do my own inner work, and I love that I don't have a fixed identity. Like I, I love that aspect of who I am, which means that my ability to match pitch with people is quite high. And I'm really happy that I also came to terms with that aspect of who I am because it's unleashed um, a lot of trapped energy that I was using, sort of trying to show up in a way that I thought that the world needed me to, when in fact the world needs people like me. The world needs mirrors. They need someone who's going to amplify something and, and bring it into harmony. And, and that is a big part of who I am. So yeah. So that's, that's, that's that piece. But to go back to your question about the grand pause. I'm so glad you went back there. Like that was so rich. Thank you. And yeah, let's talk about the grand pause and yeah. what is that first of all, and then how do you see it unfolding in our current, you know, macro social environment? 
I don't ask the easy questions, do I? No, you, you don't ask the easy questions. So a grand pause is a musical notation. It is a fermata with a, a rest underneath it. So a fermata is a musical notation that suggests that you should hold whatever you're doing. And the rest underneath indicates that you should hold the rest, which is the silence. And in classical music, you see this um, probably the most commonly. And um, it can often be a phase transition, that silence, or it can be just a moment of suspension and then a vicious continuation of the same type of music. And um, it's an opportunity for integration, but it's also an opportunity to sort of hear the reverberations of all the sensory input that you're getting that exists in music. And when I did my TED talk, one of the big things that I am pretty um, focused on is the potency of silence. And in society, we tend to um, gloss over it as though it's meaningless and um, has no nutrients and that all of the content is in the words and is in the music and is in the noise and is in the sound and in the things that are considered sort of the, the material aspects. And you know, for how much sensory input and sensation there is, I like to also think about, you know, what's the reflection of that? What's the shadow of that? What must be in that content? <clears throat> and incidentally, when I was going through my initiation in Africa, I was like, everything that we need to know is in the space between the words. What if the words were created to distinguish this, the quality of the space and not the opposite? What if that's just an aspect of communication that we've never explored before? And I, you know, I'm also a very um, I'm perceptive person. I, I feel a lot of things that cannot be explained, and um, none of it exists in a realm that where where there are words or sounds to match it. It's a lot of vibration and things like that, and it served me really well to have these skills, especially as a coach, obviously. And my TED talk really talks to um, and speaks to the fact that we um, we're putting our attention in the wrong places, basically, or at least we're not giving our attention to places that really deserve it. Um, that um, incidentally with the pandemic that came a few months later have called forth in us an aspect of our human, divine, spiritual, emotional development that <clears throat> I think is going to be required for the future of civilization as we know it. And these are skill sets that I think that humans once had and lost because of industrialization. And, you know, we had a lot more perceptivity in society. You know, there were entire civilizations that were very psychic and could communicate with one another through telepathy and who had, you know, the, the, the um, Mesopotamian era, they had like 12 different words for the tingling sensation on your skin that indicated that there was a presence nearby. You know, it's, it's just, <clears throat> we've, we've lost touch with, with so much. And um, I, I want very badly for people to be driven to understand that there's not just voice communication and body language, that there's actually cellular energetic vibrational transmission coming off of your body at all times, whether you're aware of it or not. 
then other people are responding to that, whether they're aware of it or not. And to turn up the volume on those things to start to become more aware of them, you learn how to speak a new language that is vital for intimacy. It's vital for building relationship. It's vital for growth. It's vital for innovation. It's vital for creativity. And we need all of those things now more than ever before. And it's becoming blaringly obvious as we're all either, you know, in, on the worst side of the scale, not sure how we're going to stay in our homes, lost our jobs, can't afford to eat because we've been living hand to mouth to people who've been trapped in their homes used to infinite amounts of distractions in their daily life now having to reconcile with who they are when they don't have busy anymore. It's opening a portal as far as I'm concerned to these new discoveries in ourself. If you choose to um, follow the little white rabbit or the breadcrumbs or whatever you want to call it, you know, so that's, that's how I see it, you know, and I, I yeah, I didn't expect that we were going to have a, a literal grand prize <laughs> in society. And, and it's not surprising to me that here I was doing a TED talk on this topic. It felt a little out of time, you know, like it was not totally relevant. And then it aired, like I, it finally hit YouTube in the third week of uh, the lockdown third or fourth, third or fourth week. So it was just like, where you wow. were. And I had been irritated with them because they were taking their sweet time getting it online. And I was just like, what is going on? And then it just, it came out right when it needed to be heard. Yeah. And that made me just overjoyed. I was like, oh wow, God's got this already. It's surrender. Hello, I'm not in control. <laughs> Someone else is in charge. And what's wild is that I wrote that entire speech for a meditation. Like I wrote my entire talk. I, I, I went into a meditation, um, basically time traveled to the moment where I was standing on stage in Chicago, saw what I was wearing, listened to what I was talking about, and then just wrote it down. And it was originally like a 25 minute long talk. So I obviously had to trim a lot out, but um, it was a very simple process actually. Like I, in that way, I am very, very tuned in to some other dimensions. Um, and I just, I, I was just like, I don't know why I have to talk about this, but my talk needs to be about silence and what's there. Yeah. And, and what an interesting juxtaposition of reality of having a talk about silence. Yes. And I actually made a joke at the end of my Ted talk that, um, this wasn't called a, uh, um, Ted listens. It was called a Ted talk. Um, because like genuinely I wanted to get up on that stage and just stare at the audience for 15 minutes and see what happened, but you can't really do that. A TED talk. You can, it's not a Ted listen. It's a Ted talk. <laughs> that was the joke because yeah. that, that for me would have been the communication. I really like at my level, I really wanted to make. Yeah. People can't see me grinning from ear to ear right now, but I am, <laughs> um, in the interest of time, I'm going to have you forgo the prognostication I had as part of that question of like, what's going to happen next. Mm. Cause you said something really recently in a social media video that I thought was a really great place to touch on in this conversation. And what you said was that your primary relationship is being in love with and devoted to God. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you got there. What was the internal awareness that, that led you there? And what, what did it feel like before you were consciously aware of it when it was still sort of in the not knowing knowingness? That's a really good question, Mark. <laughs> Where was I? I remember when I made the choice. 
I was in, I was in Las Vegas. <laughs> Ken Blackman says that it's one of the most spiritual cities in the world. I think it's true. <laughs> you know, people are kind of at their, at their 40 end. days in the desert. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't there for 40 days and I wasn't, I mean, I was in the desert cause it's Las Vegas and it's in the desert, but, um, you know, I have always been a very, uh, spiritually motivated and curious person. Like I have been waiting and looking and hunting for God since I can remember. Um, and my early sexual experiences were incredibly spiritual and I had no, I had no training. I'd, you know, never been to a David, read a David data book or whatever. Like, you know, he talks a lot about that. And I just kind of understood that that union was sacred and I also came from a background of horrific levels of codependency. And so I would have these spiritual experiences and I would give the credit to what I was experiencing in my own body to the partner. And then I would cling on to the partner and have him be the reason why I felt the way that I did. And then felt like love was being torn away from me. If it, if, if the relationship didn't work out and I felt like I was being um, something was being stolen from me, some aspect of myself that I felt was quite tangible was being ripped away. That was, it was really that dramatic when, when relationships ended. And um, I didn't understand at the time that, and this was, I mean, the majority of my sexual experiences in my twenties, basically, they were highly, highly spiritual experiences and highly traumatic <laughs> because mm-hmm. like, cause I was super codependent and going through the healing work of, um, of sort of disembodying codependence and embodying interdependence, I understood that the thing to be locked into was not a partner. And that also came, I think, through um, you know, a long relationship when I moved to Denmark. And then I had another sort of short, but also intense relationship um, about five or six years ago that, that really taught me that I was doing this for me. I wasn't doing it for him. I wasn't doing it for um, my ideals around the relationship. And most importantly, I wanted to feel like I owned my own experience and that nothing could ever take that away from me ever again. Because, um, I would often go into relationships feeling like there was just going to be an inevitable moment where the shoe was going to drop and I was going to end up like abandoned, you know, like it was my, my, my core wounding was big, big time abandonment. And so, yeah, this was back in 2000, early 2018. Um, I kind of like, I incidentally, that was my first experience with ayahuasca. I, um, I, been doing crazy things that are similar to plant medicine that have nothing to do with plant medicine in my coaching work for a really long time. And then I finally got the call to go to an ayahuasca ceremony. And so I I had three nights in a row of ayahuasca, um, of ayahuasca ceremonies. And I came out and just kind of, I knew that I was, I was loved for the first time in my life. Um, And it was incredibly profound for me because I, I just woke up after the second ceremony and was just like, okay, I don't ever have to doubt this ever again. And um, that I was not just loved, but I was cherished. 
and I was cherished by something that I could not understand. And it was probably a week after that, that I was just like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I am, I am going to fall in love and I'm going to stay in love. And I'm, I'm not ever going to depart from this place ever again. And sure, I, I have, um, you know, challenges, like life isn't perfect for anyone, <laughs> certainly not me. Um, but my devotion is always there now. I'm devoted to love. I am de devoted to living as the embodiment of that. And it is very demanding. And, you know, every time I get a rung deeper, I realize I don't know shit. You know, like I have no idea what this is actually demanding of me. I think I have an idea and then I will quickly have the rug pulled out from underneath me and I find out that I had no clue. You know, love is not something that has a form. It's not something that we can define. And I would rather devote myself to that than anything more certain because it is one that continues to deliver me back to myself. And my experiences with relationship when I didn't have the locus of my attention on that was that the relationship pulled me away from myself. And then I could no longer offer anything to the relationship because I would lose myself. And I understood at a fundamental level how dysfunctional that was. And I was just like, I don't, I don't want to have that experience anymore, you know? And now I cannot, I like, I won't have sex with someone unless I have a deep spiritual love for them first. Like it's, it's a, I've taken a complete 180 in my life. And in many ways I live kind of like a nun. Um, but it's, I'm really just a modern, a modern mystic who's fallen madly in love with, with the liberation I feel in my relationship with God. And I don't want to experience sexual union without that in place anymore because it's meaningless to me in comparison. And that is a, it's a liberating place to be in, in all honesty, because you, you still have desire, you still have pleasure, you still have your primal instincts. And in fact, they're, if anything, infinitely more profound in that realm than they are when you're dissecting romance and sex and relationship and, you know, devotion in, in these compartmentalized ways. Um, and that's me, you know, like I, I also have all of the, the aspects of my astrology chart, which support me living in that way, you know, like my Venus is in, in uh, the ninth house and that's the house of philosophy and spirituality. It's ideal. It's spiritual love. Like I'm looking for spiritual love. I'm not looking for material love. I'm not looking for anything beyond that. And, um, that's been true of me since I was little, um, you know, so and, and it's in Taurus and Western astrology, which means that it involves all of my senses. It's a sensorial experience for me. Mm. Um, and, and I only learned that really a couple of years ago. And I was just like, well, that makes a lot of sense, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I see it. That's how I experience it. And I think that if people all have their individual relationships, some will really resonate with what I talk about. And some will be like, that sounds awful. And, you know, I, everybody's got their own path there, you know? I'm super grateful for the level of intimacy and transparency that you brought to this conversation. This whole podcast is about revealing our inner selves and the courage it takes and the reward. And I think your story really, really exemplifies that. And 
I'm I'm super happy to be in your field. I just full disclosure, Antisa has been my coach for almost two years. And we recently pushed uh, the grand pause on that relationship. So it's great to have you here to talk to and to experience your views on things. And thank you for coming to this. And I will put in the prologue, epilogue for ways for people to contact you if they have more curiosity. And um, just since it's on the lips, when do you think the next Adventure Awake might be happening? ask COVID, I guess. Um, I was supposed to take a group to Mongolia last spring. Obviously that got canceled. Um, I don't imagine we're going to be able to do that kind of travel for a while, but I have just for you to know, (laughs) I have been fantasizing about taking my men and women's groups onto a retreat style trip and just asking around that group of people who've been working with me for, you know, a year or two years Um, whether they would be interested in going to a place where the COVID regulations were low, taking the risk of traveling, showing up, um, because I think it would just be so profound to do it right now where most people are kind of stuck at home and going somewhere, you know, tropical and just really doing some deep integrative um, coaching work together. So I've been thinking about that. I, it probably won't happen until 2021, um, maybe next spring, summer or something like that. But I want to, I'm ready. I'm ready to, <laughs> I'm ready to go take a, take a little stroll. I think we sure. all are on some level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for your time today. And I love you. Thank you. I love you. It's been such a pleasure to be here, Mark. And I love, I love having these conversations with you. So awesome. Take care. Great. Thanks. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Universe. To contact us, please go to markwentcoaching.com, M-A-R-C-W-E-N-D-T coaching.com.